Section 17 of The Good Dog Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Hand. Barry, the Dog Hero of the St. Bernard Pass by Ava March Tappan. Rather more than a hundred years ago, there lived in Switzerland, just at the edge of the city of Bern, the most lovable little St. Bernard puppy that was ever seen. His name was Barry. He had a big round head, a plump and somewhat unmanageable body that was always getting into his way, and paws so large that when he tried to walk, he stumbled over them and sprawled on the floor. He had beautiful great brown eyes and the most appealing little whimper that ever persuaded a dog's friends to give him whatever he wanted. Barry and his mother slept in a corner of the wide piazza, right under Carl's window. He did not discover Carl at once, however, for there were so many interesting things on the piazza. There were piles of wood, bundles of straw, plows and rakes and harrows and baskets, even wagons. There was always room on the piazza, and so everything was put there that could not be crowded into the barns or sheds. Barry had to examine every one of these articles— staring at them with solemn little wrinkles between his eyes and sniffing at them with his pudgy little nose. After a while, he began to notice queer sounds that came from within the house. There might be something there to play with, he thought, and one day, when the door was left open, he pushed in his inquisitive little nose and then his whole wriggling, inquisitive little body. The floor was very clean. Indeed, it was so well scrubbed that his clumsy paws slid out from under him in four different directions— and at last he sat down squarely in the middle of the room and looked around. Scarlet geraniums were growing in pots on the window sills, but they did not look good to eat or play with. There were straight-backed chairs and a table, but what they were for, Barry had not the least idea. One thing, however, did interest him so much that he wobbled over to it with his uncertain little paws to find out what it was. This was the big white porcelain stove. The fire was in a sort of furnace in the hall, but enough heat was brought into the big white stove so that Barry thought it was the most comfortable thing he had ever known, except, of course, his mother's furry breast, and he snuggled up to it cozily, all ready to take a nap. A voice said, Hello, Barry. He turned to see where it came from, which means that he toppled over in a little heap. When he picked himself up, that is, when he balanced himself on his four paws instead of on his back, the first thing he saw was a small, slender hand stretched down from somewhere. Barry gazed at it. Of course he had seen people before, and the people had hands, but the people were big, and the hands were big and different from this one. He drew back at first, then went nearer. There was something about it that he liked, and he began to lick it. And when the hand patted the cover of the low couch, and a boy's voice said, Come up, Barry, he did his very best to obey and stretched up on his unsteady little legs until he could rest his paws on the edge of the couch and look about. "'You see, Barry,' said Carl, "'I'm all alone just now, and I need a little dog exactly like you to take care of me. I'm sick, but I'm going to be well pretty soon, and then we'll do things, won't we, though?' Barry waved his tail. "'What a splendid boy that is,' he thought. "'He's as good as a puppy. I like him. I want to get up there beside him.' He did his very best to stretch himself up, the thin white hand gave what help it could, and in a minute or two the little dog was snuggling up to his new friend, quite tired out with his efforts. As the boy grew stronger, they played all sorts of games together. 
They ran races. They played fetch and carry. They scampered up the driveway that led from the ground to the top floor of the barn. They went to the little lake, and much to his surprise, Barry found out that he could swim much better than Carl. Best of all, they learned each other's language. When the puppy set out to chase a small kitten and Carl said, No, Barry, he understood that this was one of the things forbidden. If Carl said, Find my ball and we will have a play, Barry knew that a good time was coming and set off in high glee to find the ball. Carl understood the puppy just as well. If Barry laid his great paw on the boy's knee and turned his head to look out of the window, Carl knew this meant, Do please come out with me. If Barry gave a short, quick bark, it meant, I'm in a hurry. If it was a long, deep one, it meant, there is something wrong. Barry made one peculiar sound, neither bark nor whine. It began almost like a little lonesome sob, but it ended in a cry of joy. This was his greeting to Carl if the two had been separated for a while. The school children had a song called The Baron's Welcome, and they called this cry Barry's Welcome. Barry was a happy dog, but after a while, the day came when Carl and an armful of books went away from the house early in the morning, and he was forbidden to follow. He sat down on the piazza in amazement. What could it mean? It must be a mistake, for of course he had a right to go wherever Carl went, and pretty soon he jumped up and ran after him, as fast as ever he could. He was only a puppy, however, and very soon he lost the scent and wandered about, a little, forlorn, bewildered dog, roaming along through the streets of Bern. He had never been there before. When he and Carl went out together, they went through the bright, sunny fields, but the streets of the city were quite different. In most of them, the second story of the buildings extended to the very edge of the sidewalk and rested upon heavy square pillars. This made the walls dark and gloomy, and the poor little puppy began to feel afraid. Just then, he came into an open square, and he heard what seemed somewhat like a cock crowing far up above his head. He did not note that this was only the famous clock of Bern, and when, in a moment more, it began to strike, the little lost dog was frightened almost out of his wits. He ran for his life, paying no attention to where he was going, and soon he was more alarmed than ever, for right before him were some pits or sunken yards where bears were kept. Some of them were walking about, others sitting down and catching in their forepaws the pieces of gingerbread that people were tossing to them. Poor little Barry. He was a plucky little dog, but he was only a puppy. He had wandered forlornly through strange, gloomy streets. He had heard terrible noises coming down from the skies, and now he had come upon these awful monsters, twenty times as big as he, who might fly right up over the rails just as the bird did and devour him. There is nothing else in the world so lonely as a lost dog. Is it any wonder that he threw back his head and howled and howled? I want my mother. I want Carl. This was what he said, but no one understood. A lady patted him and tried to comfort him, but this was not what he wanted. He wanted to go home. At last, a tall policeman came and took hold of his collar. He turned it around so he could see the lettering. Then he reverently made the sign of the cross and said to the lady, This dog belongs to the good fathers far up on the St. Bernard Pass. Does anyone know who has the dogs this year? He asked a group of children. Carl's father has some of them, they replied. May we take him back? Barry had found that he was being cared for, and he had lain down flat on the pavement, stretched out to his full length, utterly tired out. No, said the policeman, a pup gets tired as soon as a baby. He is too used up to walk. Pretty soon I will take him home in the police wagon. So it was that Barry came home. 
A very happy boy threw his arms around the dog's neck, and as for Barry, he snuggled himself under Carl's jacket, nestling closer and closer, drawing in his breath like a sob, and then making little plaintive sounds of pleasure. The next morning, when Carl was ready for school, Barry sat on the piazza and looked up into his face pleadingly. No, Barry, said Carl. Dogs aren't allowed to come to school. And he went off, trying hard to forget the mournful little figure on the piazza. Half an hour later, a delighted boy ran up the steps of his home. Mother, mother, he cried. The teacher says that if Barry will be very good, he may come every day and lie in the hall till it is time to come home. He says that on the pass of St. Bernard, a dog like this one saved the life of his own brother, and that some day, when Barry is grown up, he may rescue some one of us from the cold and storm. Come, Barry. And they ran off happily together. Barry grew rapidly into a dog of medium size, square-built and compact. His coat was white and tan, his hair short, but close to his skin it was so thick as to be almost like felt. His ears drooped and his eyes were dark and deep-set. His whole bearing was gentle and affectionate, even playful, but yet with a certain quiet dignity as if he was waiting for something of importance to happen. When the winter snows began to fall, Barry plunged joyfully into the drifts, sniffing and scratching and pawing as if he was in search of something. The children made little caverns in the snow and hid in them so that he would come and dig them out. They put bits of their bread and cheese down deep in the drifts and covered them up, but Barry never failed to find them. The schoolmaster stood at the window watching their play. It's in the blood, he said to himself. That dog would never be happy away from the highlands. It's the call of his work that he is feeling, and he has a call to save lives just as the pastor has to save souls. With the coming of spring, Barry grew restless. He smelled the air uneasily. His great brown eyes began to have a troubled and anxious look, like one weighed down with the thought of work not done, and the fear of not being able to do it. He's never been on the mountain, said the schoolmaster, but he's pining for the high pass and the storm wind and the struggle. You must let him go, boy, he said to Carl. No good will come from keeping either man or beast from the duty that's calling them. The St. Bernard dogs were kept in burn until they were nearly grown, because the intense cold of the pass was too severe for them when young. Carl had known from the first that as soon as Barry was old enough, he must go to the good fathers at the pass. But when one is only twelve, old enough is a long way off. And when Barry was sent for, Carl was heartbroken. "'Will you surely write me every year and tell me if Barry is well?' he said, with eyes brimful of tears, to the young monk who had come for the dog. "'But Carl,' said the boy's father, "'you must not forget that the good monks have much to do and many lives to save.' "'But Barry has a life, too,' the boy pleaded. "'I promise you,' the young monk said gravely. "'And when I am grown up, will you let me come to the hospice and help Barry to save people in the storm?' If you still wish it when the time comes, I do not doubt that there will be a place for you, said the monk, looking tenderly into the boy's earnest face. I'll surely come, Barry, whispered Carl with his arms around the dog's neck. Barry licked his cheek, then followed the monk, stranger as he was. Barry knows he is going to his work, said the schoolmaster. Suddenly, the dog stood still, then turned back, put his paws on the boy's shoulder, licked his cheek once more, and set off for the fierce struggle with the cold and the snow and the tempests of the upper mountains. But when the monk and his dogs began the climb, no one would have thought that they were going to a place of cold and storm. There was no shade on the path, and the sun was blazing hotly. Flowers were everywhere. The rocks were carpeted with heather, and in their clefts and among the boulders the yellow violets were growing. 
Pansies made wonderful splashes of purple gorgeousness against the brilliant green of the grass. In the shadows of the woods, a few tardy blossoms of the ladies' slipper stood with dignity and grace. Alpine roses, with their fresh green leaves, came out bravely into the sunshine. Up, up they went. Here and there were cataracts slipping over the precipices. Wisps of white clouds gathered around the peaks. The sunshine was no longer golden and burning, but chilly and pale. The deep ravines grew deeper and darker. The wind rose and began to roar through the fir trees and the pines. Now and then the dogs pricked up their ears at the sound of a distant avalanche. They looked startled and expectant. What were they coming to? Tired as they were, they sometimes dashed ahead of the monk, plunging into the snow that was still deep in the gullies and floundering about in it, then running back to their leader and gazing inquiringly into his face, as if to question what it all meant. They were eager and restless, but not troubled. It was in the blood, as the schoolmaster had said, and although they obeyed when the monk called, Come, children, and rest a bit, they gazed wistfully at the path that stretched before them. They came to a deep and narrow valley known as the Valley of Death because so many had been lost in its winter snows. The path wound from side to side, crossing the roaring torrent of a river and recrossing it again and again. Deep chasms yawned between the rocks, precipices stretched up to the sky. The patches of snow grew larger and deeper, and the gullies overflowed with it. The excited dogs gathered around the young monk, and he talked to them gently and quietly. It is all right, my children, he said. It is only a little farther before we come to home and supper. Listen, do you hear that? The dogs pricked up their ears, for up the height, not so very far away, they heard the friendly barking of dogs of their own breed. A turn in the pathway widened the view, and in the twilight the dogs could see a great building with little windows and massive walls of gray stone. This was the hospice, where, of all who asked for hospitality, not one was refused. The tired dogs were fed, and with a kindly word and a pat from the monks, they were sent to bed to rest for the new life that lay before them. For seven centuries, monks had kept this hospice open for all who came, whether wealthy people traveling for pleasure, or workmen coming from Italy into Switzerland to find work, or peasants who had taken this shortest and cheapest way of going from one country to another. These put money into the little box in the chapel if they were able and chose, but no one was ever asked for a penny. Many thousands came every year. The convent bell rang at all hours of night and day. Even he who arrived at midnight always found a hot supper and a bed waiting for him, and in the morning there was breakfast and a God bless you as he started to continue his journey. When the ten months of winter began, then came the terrible snowstorms, covering with treacherous bridges and chasms between the rocks, changing the places of the drifts, rooting up trees, hiding the familiar streams and every trace of the pathway. Travelers became exhausted. They stopped to rest. The fatal mountain sleepiness overpowered them, and unless help came swiftly, that was the end. It was in such times as these that the monks went forth in anxious search. No one went without a dog, and the dog was always in the lead. He pushed on where he thought best, and the monks never questioned, but followed like little children whatever path he might choose. More than once the dogs refused to go by the usual path, and in each instance some good reason was found afterwards for their refusal. They knew Munch by instinct, but they were carefully trained, and this training went on with most dogs for two years or more before they could be sent out by themselves. They set out in pairs. A blanket was bound to the back of each, and a flask of wine tied around his neck. 
Their smell was so keen that they could find a man even under a deep covering of snow. Then they pawed until they reached him. They licked his hands and face and lay down beside him to make him warm. Sometimes they could arouse him so that by partly dragging him and partly by urging him onward, they could persuade him to push on to the hospice. If not, they howled and barked until someone came to their aid. On the night of Barry's arrival, the house was full of guests, and in the morning everyone hurried out after breakfast to see the famous dogs. They were having a regular good time, howling and barking and rolling in the snow, and playing tricks on one another. These are our children, our braves, our lay brothers, said the father with a smile. See what gentlemen they are when they are introduced. Jupiter, he called, and a big dog came forward and shook hands with one of the guests. Mars was the next name called. Mars was the baby, Jupiter's grandson, and when Jupiter had marched away to shake hands, the little rascal of a Mars had jumped into his grandfather's warm place. It was very comfortable, but he obeyed and came forward looking as mischievous as the rogue that he was. Oliver, and Oliver came forward and shook hands in friendly fashion. Barry had been watching with his head cocked to one side and his eyes shining. He knew how to do that, and he did wish the father would call his name. Barry, the father called at last, with no idea that he would understand what was wanted, but Barry walked up to him with the utmost dignity and offered his paw. Good boy, cried the father, and patted the dog's head. This was one of the tricks that the children in Burn had taught him, and he was delighted to show what he could do. The days were full, but the kind young monk did not fail to write to Carl, and before many months had passed, he wrote, Barry found his first traveler in the snow last night, and persuaded him to arouse himself and push on to the hospice. This is the first time that a dog with so short a training has done such a thing. Barry knew how it felt to be lost, said Carl to himself. Another time, the monk wrote, a group of peasants were overwhelmed by an avalanche. The grown people were killed, but Barry found one little girl still alive, though badly bruised. Somehow he made her understand that she must lie on his back and put her arms around his neck, and what a proud little lay brother was he when he brought her safely home. How he ever thought of getting her on his back I do not know. He had not yet been taught that. When Carl read this letter he smiled. We know, don't we, Barry, he said to himself. More than one of our little girl friends has had a ride on your back, and you learned just how to crouch so they could get on easily. At length there came a letter that said, Barry is our finest dog. He has saved in all the lives of forty persons. He is happy, but sometimes he goes to the edge of the cliff and stands gazing down the long and winding path. I believe that he is thinking of you. Will you not come and visit us? The hand that wrote this trembled, and now there were no more letters, for the young monk had died. There were no long lives on the pass of St. Bernard. He who gave himself up to the work of saving lost travelers knew well that his days would be few. Now that Carl had no more news of the dog, he thought of him even oftener, and before long he and his friend Marco started to go over the pass. Marco had friends on the other side, and Carl had a deep longing to see Barry. It was the edge of the winter, but the storms had not yet been severe, and they hoped to get through without trouble. All went well up to the beginning of the Valley of Death. Here the snow began to fall heavily, the sky was thick and dull, and the wind was rising. It came in savage gusts, striking one precipice, flinging itself back to another, whirling the young men about with furious blows and buffetings. This grows worse all the time, said Carl. Let us rest for five minutes and eat our lunch, and then push on with all our might. A struggle like this needs something better than bread and cheese, said Marco. I have brought a flask of the strongest brandy just for such a time. 
My grandfather knew the mountains as well as I know our own house, said Carl, and he always said that a mountain climber must keep his head clear. Don't drink it, Marco, he pleaded earnestly. Don't you know the old saying, he who drinks brandy at the peak will never again drink wine in the valley? I'll wager that the man who wrote that never was at the peak, retorted Marco lightly. In spite of all that Carl could say, Marco took a long, deep drink from his flask and pushed on forward. But the storm drove on more and more fiercely. I must sleep just a moment, then I can go on, he said drowsily, and sank down beside a great drift. Carl pleaded. He shook the man and pulled him and dragged him as far as he could, but he himself stumbled and fell, and before he could get upon his feet, a sudden whirlwind of snow had covered his friend. He felt about in the storm and darkness, but there was no trace of him to be found. Heavily he plodded on. Late in the night there was a ring at the hospice door, so faint and tremulous that the good father who answered it almost believed that he had dreamed of the sound. The story was soon told. It may not be too late, said the monk. Our best dogs were sent the moment we heard that a man was out. They will find him and he will be brought in. Has Barry gone? asked Carl anxiously. I have come all this way to see Barry. And you will see him, said the monk soothingly as if to a child. But now sleep, and you shall be called as soon as he comes. In the early gray of the morning, Marco was brought in, still half-dazed. Barry had found him and had pawed the stifling snow away and had joyfully licked his hands and face until he began to awake. But his brain was stupid and dull, his eyes were dim and misty, wild fancies and terrors had seized upon him, and while Barry was barking joyfully for help, his only thought was that a wild beast had attacked him. He fumbled with unsteady hand, pulled out his knife, and stabbed the loving friend, who with no thought of his own suffering, was with all his strength struggling to drag him to the shelter. The brave dog's blood reddened the snowflakes that swirled angrily around them. Barry's steps staggered more and more. At the gate he dropped and his eyes closed. The monks knelt around him and watched him tenderly. Barry! Barry! cried Carl in a voice that trembled with affection and grief. Barry moved his head slightly. His eyes opened. He looked slowly from one to another, all around the little group, last of all at Carl. For a moment he questioned. Then there came into his eyes the light of a great joy. He made a familiar sound, faint and distant it seemed, but yet clear and distinct. It was Barry's welcome and his farewell. Barry died in 1816 after twelve years of unselfish, faithful service. When the Cemetery for Dogs was opened in Paris, the place of honor was given to a monument in his memory. This shows the little girl on his back whom he rescued after the fall of the avalanche. She is holding fast to him, and Barry's head is turned a little toward her as if he was telling her to trust him and not be afraid, for he would surely carry her safely home. End of section 17. End of the Good Dog Book by Various Authors.